cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Yep, live around the world on the internet at MichaelDukeShow.com and across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or FM translator. Good morning and welcome to it. It is the Michael Duke Show, the Monday edition of the Michael Duke Show. It's Monday. In case you couldn't tell, uh, we're ready to go. Uh, got a jam-packed show for you today. Let me tell you just a bit about it here before we get started. Uh, coming up in this hour, J.D. to Chile is going to be joining us uh, from Reason Magazine. Uh, he's been uh, he's had a nice vacation, and he came back guns ablazing with uh, some great articles. Uh, if you don't follow uh, J.D. Uh, at Reason Magazine, you're missing out. You can get uh, you could sign up for his. Uh, uh, he's got a he's got a it's not a newsletter. It's basically it, it highlights every article that he writes uh, over at uh, Reason. Uh, it's called The Rattler and you can get signed up for it over at Reason Magazine. Just go over there and I'll drop a link here in the chat room in a second. Uh, but you can follow everything that he writes. Um, and uh, like I said, he came back from vacation, just guns a blaze and dropping some great articles. And we're going to talk about that, including. Um, the potential, uh, and there's a push across the country right now, uh, for the use of psychedelics and psychotropics uh, for uh, the treatment of PTSD and depression. And this is some um, this is some amazing stuff. They've had some great results with this, and I wanted to get his take on it and talk uh, talk with him about that. We're going to do that here in just a minute. Uh, but first. Uh, let me tell you about the rest of the show. In hour two this morning, we're going to be talking with um, Sarah Montalbano, who is, of course, with the uh, Alaska Policy Forum. And she's going to be talking with us about, well, education, because that's kind of uh, one of her main one of her main gigs is uh, dealing with education. But she's moved up there at the Policy Forum. So we're also going to be talking about uh, defined benefits and the pension the return to that, some taxation, maybe occupational licensing. We got we got a lot of stuff to cover today. It's going to be a full two hours with her, or full hour with her. So it's going to be a full two hours today. JD and then Sarah and then I haven't had my coffee. Stop stop mocking me. All right, here we go. Uh, we're going to get into it. So uh, I guess without further ado, oh, and the session starts tomorrow. The legislative session starts tomorrow, and you can already see it. Uh, they had a rally in Anchorage uh, yesterday, Saturday, yesterday, um, where everybody was in red to show that they're in solidarity and we need to spend more money on education, even though we spend $2.6 billion on education in this state. I mean, we need to spend more. So they all got together and... Uh, you know, I, you can already see how it's going to be shaping up, what this session is going to look like, and <clears throat> it's not going to be pretty, man. It's not going to be pretty. All right, but we'll get to that here in a minute. So uh, he's uh, he's waiting in the wings, the man, the myth, the legend, uh, J.D. Tuchilli, uh over there from Reason Magazine. Let's pull him up this morning and uh, and get things going on and see what he has to say. Good morning, my friend. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for coming on, sir. I know uh, you know you had first and foremost. I got to ask: Did you have a 
Did you have a great uh, holiday? I know you were on vacation there for four or five weeks because uh, I kept getting your, I kept getting uh, the repeats. Not that I didn't mind them, the repeats of your old stuff in the Rattler. Uh, it was, in fact, what was funny was it was a story that I had missed. Apparently, you writing the first time, and I thought you were back, and so I'm talking about it, and then I realized the story is like seven months old, and I'm like, oh, okay, it, it's fine, we we got it. But did you did you enjoy your vacay? Was it a was it a great holiday season for you? It actually ended up being a medical leave um, after I had an emergency pacemaker implanted. Uh, so oh, it's it's a Christmas it's a Christmas I could have done without, but uh, I got to see my son and uh, and rest a little. It and was, those were good things. It was a Christmas miracle. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? You made it through? Yes, it? yes, it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have one of the you had the uh, tracker, right? You had the the tattletale of uh, on your thing. So was that a was that a contributing factor to helping you survive? The holidays well um the the tracker is in there now so i've got the base station that broadcasts my um my heart condition the status of my cardiac health to my doctor it can be programmed remotely i actually the latest column is about that that went up today and how it's uh, it's very helpful it keeps me alive but it also really creeps me out that i can be uh, fine-tuned and adjusted by a dude with a tablet I know, really. You're like, hackers, beware. You could be, you know, they could be true heartbreakers at that point. Yeah, so. Um, all right, well, let's uh, let's dive into this, J.D., because I find this, um, I find this whole discussion fascinating. Um, uh, Nick Gillespie had, uh, from Reason, they had that big 30-minute documentary on, um, on psychedelics, uh, MDM, Molly, uh, uh, you know, psilocybins, all those. Uh, and it was a fascinating look into that kind of that world. And that was really my first uh, that was really kind of my first uh, a foray into that. And now you have written about this. The headline is what caught my attention, though. I love the headline. Let Elon Musk enjoy drugs uh, because everybody was mocking, uh, you know, Elon Musk for potentially, I guess, with Joe Rogan, he'll smoke some pot with Joe Rogan and everything else. But this is a bigger issue than just that. So let's get started. Give me the rundown here. Well, uh, the Wall Street Journal ran this piece uh, citing um, anonymous sources who had observed Elon Musk's alleged drug use that he has. You know, we know he smokes grass. He did it with Joe Rogan, but that he uses ketamine, psilocybin and some of the other popular drugs in the tech community, um, a lot of them being uh, psychedelics, psychoactive in other way. And uh, the piece was kind of a scare piece. I mean, is this affecting uh, Elon Musk's uh, judgment? Is it affecting the valuation of his companies? It sounded like the usual concern trolls pan, uh, planting a story in the press. And it was, um, I mean, I don't know if Elon Musk has a drug problem. He may well use drugs. A lot of tech people do. And there are good reasons to use drugs. I mean, obviously, recreationally, as long as you have it under control, like anything else. I mean, if you drink, um, drink in moderation, they were always told. Same with a lot of these drugs, psilocybin, MDMA, um, ketamine. But there's also therapeutic effects. And Elon Musk has alluded in the past to the therapeutic effects of ketamine in particular on depression, how microdosing it can control depression. And there's actually a lot of research saying that it's more effective than other treatments we have for PTSD and for clinical depression. Uh, MDMA, ketamine, and uh, psilocybin in particular have good track records. In some cases, um, there's evidence that one dose of psilocybin or a, um, can it, can improve uh, depression? You know the outlook for people with clinical depression, and uh, the outlook for depression, treating a depression with ketamine, it can be effective supposedly uh, within 40 minutes, which is amazing. 
So um, it was a hit piece in the press that set me off because there's a lot of research going on that says that in moderation, used properly, these drugs can be very helpful, actually. Yeah, you mean they're not talking about you going into the your shed in the backyard and just tripping balls or something. I mean, this is something where it's underneath a doctor's supervision. I've got a family member who is now doing uh, who is now using some of that ketamine treatment for depression, and it's making a huge, huge difference in uh, in these kind of things because it creates new neural pathways in your brains and does all kinds of stuff. I mean, this is. It's some amazing stuff. Once we can get past the biases and the prejudices of what's going on, it can do some amazing things. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like everything else. You can do it wrong, you can do it badly, or you can do it well. And so let, telling us that a, any particular figure takes ketamine doesn't say that this figure is abusing the drug or that it's having a negative um, effect on their decision making. In fact, it's quite possible that Elon Musk and others are performing better if they're appropriately using treatments for depression, for PTSD, or for other mental health issues. Um, also, relaxation. I mean, a lot of us, I think, are better for it if we have a drink uh, every now and then and take the edge off. And that could be the case with these drugs, too. Right. Again, it's all about moderation. I don't know the specifics of Elon Musk's drug use, but neither do the authors of that Wall Street Journal piece. No, and I did find the piece to be... I got to be, you know, slightly condescending as they're writing their piece with their fifth of Jack Daniels or their fine whiskey sitting next to them on the table, you know, as they're writing this piece. And you're like, wait a second, intoxicants are intoxicants, one or the other. I mean, you know, it, it and and everything has a therapeutic effect. I remember one of my, uh, you know, my, my wife's doctors saying uh, with with one of our children that, you know, she had a high blood pressure. She was very stressed out about it. And he's like. You know, a glass of wine once a week is not a big deal. It'll help you relax and it'll actually benefit you. And I'm like, she's pregnant. And you're saying, and he was a good, you know, upright. He was a guy who didn't drink, you know, very straight laced. And he's like, you know, a glass of wine every now and then would not hurt you kind of thing. And I thought, wow, that's a, that's a, that's, that was out of left field. I did not expect that, but it's a true, it's true with anything, right? I mean, and, and this is not just you saying, it's not just people who are advocates saying it. Um, the Journal of American Medicine actually was talking about this. I mean, they have looked at things like psilocybin and things like that. They absolutely have. I mean, uh, psilocybin has, um, ha is showing really enormous potential for treating both depression and PTSD, sometimes with a single dosage, which is amazing. Um, uh, MDMA, uh, which some people know as ecstasy, got reputation as a club drug, when used as part of treatment protocols, improves the treatment for depression and PTSD, anxiety, other ailments also. Um, again, under under supervision or microdosing, I mean, anything in moderation, right? Um, and uh, ketamine, same thing. One dose, 40 minutes, improvement, uh, improvement in, in clinical depression. And we have a huge mental health problem in this country right now. That's why there's uh, there are very few things that will bring Republicans and Democrats together in Congress these days. But you have cross-aisle alliances between Republicans and Democrats uh, working on trying to at least legalize more research and availability of these of these psychedelics, in particular for veterans who often suffer from PTSD, sorry PTSD, but for anybody else, I mean, because this can be useful to the entire country. Time when mental health is becoming a greater problem um, on a regular basis. 
Absolutely. And, and, and I think that's the one thing I want to get into in the next segment is to talking about uh, specifically the PTFD, uh, PTSD with veterans. And this is making actually some mainstream noise. Um, we're seeing more and more of this. This has made its way even into popular culture. And we're going to talk about that here in just a second. J.D. Tuchili is our guest. Uh, he is, uh, of course, a senior uh, editor over there at, uh, or managing editor, former managing editor at Reason Magazine. He's had all kinds of hats over there. I can't keep track of him. And uh, he's now uh, uh, here with us talking about the legalization of psychedelics uh, or the potential uh, in the United States. We're going to continue our discussion with him here in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Don't forget, you can always join us out on Facebook during the uh, uh, during the commercial breaks. If you want to hang out with us during the commercial breaks in the chat room, we'll have some chats offline and you can or off the air. You can come out and hang out with us there. Facebook.com slash Michael Duke Show slash live. We'll continue with more here. J.D. Tuchilli from Reason Magazine returns right after this. The Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. If you missed the show, you can listen to it on your time with Dukes On Demand. Oh, and it's free. Like America used to be. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Okay, J.D. Tuchili, our guest here in the uh, in the chat room. You got your pup there. Mine's down at my feet under my desk. He's... <laughs> He just he just doesn't want to leave me alone. He just like, you know, goes everywhere with me. So it's uh it's good. Well, my friend, I'm so glad that you um that you uh you caught it and uh I mean, you were you were on vacation, right? I mean, or did it, it became a medical leave? Was this kind of an emergency situation? It was an emergency situation. Um uh, my wife had noticed because I I do have a cardio monitor. Those things they market on TV, they actually work. Right. And I could I couldn't get my heart rate above 30. So it was topping off at 30, and my wife said my memory was um, not good. I don't remember that myself, but she says I was definitely having some uh, processing issues. So she called the uh, cardiologist. He said, go to the ER right now. Um, I ended up being transported from the ER by ambulance to a uh, ICU 50 miles away, and the next morning I had a pacemaker on my chest. Uh, my heart rate was actually so low that they didn't sedate me. I was uh, the pacemaker was put in under local anesthesia, which I really do not recommend. Oh God, no! But we <laughs> no. we do what we have to do. But so I'm much better now. It was I bounced back nicely. Wow, yeah, no, that I definitely don't recommend cracking your chest when you are uh, when you have no. Oh God, man, I can't imagine. Yeah, so well, I'm glad you're with us, my friend. That. Uh, yeah, and and thank goodness your wife, who is also a physician, isn't she? She's a physician. Yeah, yeah. she's a, a pediatrician. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, she understood some of that stuff. Thirty beats a minute. Whew. I mean, that's what those runners go for, right? When they're at rest. But uh, you definitely want to get it up uh, at that point. Um, yeah, I I I've been hearing it's probably over the last four or five months. Uh, I had been hearing about this, uh, and my initial exposure to it, which we'll talk about here in a second, was actually. Um, on broadcast television, I was a little surprised that they could, they included that in a uh, um, 
in a uh, uh, in a regular old broadcast television report. And we'll talk about that when we get back. But more and more people are talking about how it it, it can change. I mean, so many different things, whether it's you know fibromyalgia or um, you know depression, uh, uh, the PTSD. Uh, migraines was another one that I've heard that, you know, some of those things can affect. And, you know, this is not something that's new for some people, especially first peoples and things like that. I mean, they've been using these things not just for religious purposes, but for medical uses for, you know, a thousand years. Oh, absolutely. And uh, we don't fully understand what's going on in terms of PTSD, in terms of depression. I've heard some speculation that it has to do with basically habits, neural pathways. We get into habitual behaviors and attitudes, and it's very hard to get out of those ruts. And there's at least some speculation that psychedelics um, kind of push us out of them, help us form new habits, get us out of the bad old ones. But for whatever reason, however, however it works, the research says that in many cases, used properly a lot of these psychedelics can really treat mental ailments and other elements too but a lot of stuff having to do with neurological functions um, and improve ptsd depression anxiety and other ailments and more research obviously um, is due i mean there's grounds for go looking uh further into this and seeing that if some of these very these tr uh, ailments that are very resistant to treatment um, can be better addressed by using the psychedelics yeah well, it's it's an amazing idea, and the problem is, I think you know what we're facing right now is the um, is kind of the prejudice of this uh, you know thing because we've been taught for years you know that the, the just say no, the war on drugs. I mean, the whole thing, uh, and of course we have bad examples of this, whether it's the you know tripping of the '60s and and the you know season of free love and the anti-war movement and everything else. This was a lot of their recreational drugs of choice, but. I mean, there is definitely, I mean, uh, who was it that was talking about they used it, the microdosing, to open their mind? I mean, it was some physicist or something who had actually talked about it at some point. Some people are using it to expand kind of, the you know, the way they think. Uh, and that's been beneficial to them as well. So we'll get into all that here in just a second because, again, I find this to be a fascinating topic. And uh, we'll we'll dive into this. J.D. Tuchili, our guest uh, the Michael Luke Show continues. Uh, like, share, subscribe, ring the bell. Let's get going on. Here we go. Jumping back into it. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Here we go. The Michael Duke Show. Seriously humorous with a pinch of intellect. <laughs> pinch of intellect. Sorry. That is humorous. Here's Michael Duke's. That's just hurtful, man. That's just, that's hurtful. All right, uh, we're uh, continuing now. J.D. Tuchili is our guest, former managing editor for Reason Magazine. Uh, we're talking about one of his latest pieces, uh, which has to do with the legalization of psychedelics. Um, and I was just talking about this, uh, J.D., that the problem that I think we're going to have to overcome in the very beginning is kind of... Uh, you know, our history with psychedelics, our history in this country, you know, you first thing you talk about magic mushrooms and LSD and it's either, you know, government programs that, you know, MK Ultra or whatever, or some other kind of fringe theory or just the hippie movement or whatever. That's like immediately, uh, you know, a trigger for most people They don't even want to talk about it. But the thing is, we need to overcome those prejudices because we're seeing that there is a tremendous amount of opportunity here to treat people 
with things like, uh, you know, depression, PTSD, chronic pain, chronic uh, fatigue syndrome, you know, neuropathy, all these different things that have happened. They're all seeing bright spots with the potential for this uh, coming forward. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Getting past the hippie reputation, the summer of love. I mean, that that's uh, where people get resistant to using these drugs in any way. But anything at least has potential when used in moderation. And there's no particular reason not to give it a shot. And the fact is, researchers have looked into this. and They have found out that certain dosings, and I don't want to get into specific dosings because I don't know enough about that. and I don't want to give advice to people. But um, that specific doses um, and very sometimes singular doses of these drugs can really help treat depression, anxiety, PTSD, and other disorders. And uh, Elon Musk, um, and that's where we started with this, has referenced to his problems with depression and other and other uh, you know uh, mental ailments in the past, and how he uses these drugs, um, or at least he's he has found promise in these drugs, ketamine also um, for treating them. What's interesting, of course, is that this uh, this drive-by attack on him in the Wall Street Journal, uh, where, they're where they're trying to bring his uh, business judgment to question based on drug use, um, what they what they uh, brought out in him is that uh, he says that after he smoked grass publicly with Joe Rogan, uh, because he has contracts with NASA through SpaceX, right, um, and SpaceX, I mean, and, and uh, NASA because it's a government agency requires that um, its contractors not use drugs. He says that for a year after that, he and other SpaceX employees had to undergo drug testing. So whatever he does by preference, he almost certainly was not doing during that year. And no one re references that time as a golden age when his judgment was supposedly better because they didn't know he was being drug tested. During right, that time. right, right. No, so, I, um, it, it, if it has any effect on his judgment, it's not apparent from his from his behavior. Right. No, that that's what killed me is that. Oh, yeah. So now you're going to, you know, put everybody under a microscope because he did something that was freely and, and welcome and legal and available where he was at. But, you know, we're going to put the whole company under a microscope. It's crazy. And, and we're talking about a whole variety of, uh, of different substances here. Um, as Kath, uh, uh, Gail points out, you know, mushrooms are 180 degrees different from LSD, but both have got therapeutic value. Um, you know, Molly, MDM, I mean, they, they've got – it's got a, a different take. Everything that's going on there has got a different effect. And as you mentioned earlier, we have a mental health crisis here in America, not just with – and, and, and aside from that, I mean, aside from the fact that we've got a mental health crisis in America, we also have this huge veteran population. Um, and, of course, many of the veterans, <clears throat> excuse me, are suffering from PTSD. And some of my first exposure to this was probably two years ago. Uh, I was watching uh, the show Navy SEALs, which are or SEALs, SEAL Team, SEALs, mm -hmm. the one with David Boreanaz. SEAL Team. Yeah, yeah. Yep. The one was David Boreanaz. And there was a there was a couple episodes there where they had a guy that was suffering just strongly from PTSD, and they ended up going down to Costa Rica or someplace, and they had a, a another former veteran buddy who was down there, and he was working in another country helping veterans with PTSD using mushrooms and psychedelics to help them cope with their PTSD because he'd gone through it. And so he was walking them. And I thought, wow, you got a mainstream show having guys who are in uniform, not in uniform, but active duty trying to overcome their PTSD. And this is how they were using it. And that's when I started hearing more and more about it. So this movement has been, uh, you know, kind of mainstreamed now and it's getting more traction overall. 
it's getting more traction. Uh, a lot of people are very interested in the in uh, the outcomes, potentials for this, and a lot of people have tried it on their own, illegally, under the radar, experimenting, um, and that kind of led the way because a lot of them had success. Now that doesn't mean that everybody has had success or that everybody um, had positive experience with these drugs, um, especially when you don't know what the dosing is supposed to be or how the frequency of it or whatever else it might be. But when researchers look into it, when they follow up on people's reported experiences, yeah, they find a lot of promise. This stuff can do very well. And it's not just one drug. It seems to be a the whole range of psychedelics at least has potential for a, a large number of these ailments. One of the things that as I was talking with my family member that is uh, doing this for depression is is having ketamine tre treatments for depression. And I was asking a lot of questions and uh, they had some literature from the doctor and everything else. And they, you know, the whole thing that got me was that these things, the, the ketamine in particular at this point is what we were talking about was but others psychotropics have been doing the same thing are cutting new neural pathways so instead of going down the same rabbit hole the circle thinking the anxiety the depression it helps actually carve these new pathways into your brain to make your brain try and loop around that and in a way heal itself because you keep going over the same scar tissue over and over in thought processes and impulses and everything else and this kind of goes around that and, uh, you know, they kind of said it's like a roadblock where you can detour around it and come onto a new path, but you've got to cut that new pathway in. And that's part of this treatment. And I thought, wow, that's a that's a crazy because we just don't we still don't understand the mind. I mean, we're in the 21st century. We still don't understand the mind uh, and the brain and how it works 100 percent. But we see these things. Why shouldn't people have the ability to test this out? I mean, again, if we're you know, all free people and we have the ability to, and it's we're willing to give it a shot, especially in small doses under the care of a medical professional. Why why shouldn't we be given this opportunity? Yeah, I mean, as you say, we don't really understand what PTSD is, depression is, a lot of these things. There's at least some evidence or, or theorizing that they're that they're kind of bad neurological and psychological habits. We get into ruts um, of depression, of anxiety, uh, and that these drugs can help form new pathways and lead us into new better habits but whether or not we understand how they work there is correlation with better outcomes in using them it would be better to understand them more fully but even if we don't if they work that in and of itself is a good thing and they're worth trying experimenting with um, and researching more and this leads me to the question now of if it does get legalized uh, or at least for treatment or things like that then you have uh, you fixed a problem of something like the black market. I mean, one of the things that I it was another article I read that was talking about some of the problems with this right now is that people have, you know, they have no idea what the if they're trying to do it themselves because nobody is doing it legally and they're trying to dose themselves. They have no idea of the dosage. They have no idea of what to do, you know, how to do, you know, it really could fix a, a problem with, uh, you know, an illicit market or having things, you know, just doing it wrong, essentially. Well, absolutely. I mean, MDMA, uh, ecstasy, before it was outlawed back in the 80s. Um, was being used in couples therapy um, and, and in psychological counseling uh, by doctors who were kind of experimenting in that field. And the problem is that once it was outlawed, uh, it was driven to black market laboratories. You started having bad outcomes because you didn't know what you were buying. Uh, you didn't know the purity. 
you didn't know the concentration. And as every time you drive uh, anything to the black market, uh, you end up with less accountability in terms of the quality of the product and service that's offered at the end. And so you end up having real problems with the black market MDMA, whereas the stuff had, been, had shown real promise early on before it was outlawed when it was available from legal reputable sources and if we if you return that to some kind of a legal status you can get controlled dosage controlled purity and do much better quality research and have better outcomes in terms of using it right i mean in the first uses of mdma i mean this was a fda approved i mean this was you know it had standards it was i mean it had gone through the whole process it was already there uh, but once they said, oh, no, you can't do that uh, because some people abused it or whatever. Oh, no, you can't do that. So now they've outlawed it. And that's, again, when you're driving some of these solutions into the black market, into the underground, you know, you've done more harm than good. That was in the 80s. I mean, we're talking, you know, 40 yeah. years ago. What what could have what could have, what good could have been done in the last 40 years if it hadn't been driven underground? Well, I just did. And of course, you drive it underground and you create a black market culture around it and you create a black market reputation around it. And you also get accustomed to or um, hear about the bad effects of the impure stuff. Um, who knows what it's adulterated with? Amphetamines very often are put into it uh, because it comes out of a black market laboratory. You don't know what you're getting. Right. So, yeah, we, we lost a lot of ground there. A lot of years we could have gotten benefit uh, benefit from the drug, at least potentially. Yeah. Well, um, it, I mean, some good news. As you said, this is kind of crossing the aisle. Uh, you've got people on the left and the right, uh, Democrats and Republicans, who are now talking about this in a very, uh, you know, pro uh, type environment uh, where maybe not for widespread use, but at least for uh, for research and education and things like that. What do you think the chances are of something like this, uh, you know, actually, you know, making it uh, to the to the people? I think it's very good. Um, I mean, it's not just Elon Musk and the te and tech billionaires experimenting with it. It's veterans. It's people who have not had good luck with other treatment outcomes. It's researchers and scientists and physicians. There's a lot of grassroots push for it. And when you see AOC and together on this, when you see Cory Booker and Rand Paul working together on this, there's a cross uh, aisle alliances that uh, puts partisanship aside so that you get a real move for legalizing, for experimenting, for researching. So I think that the chances of, of uh, easing access to these drugs uh, for therapeutic uses, at least, is very good. Yeah, I had to laugh because Jordan Peterson uh, is he's had uh, whole conversations about this and the positive aspects of it and things like that. And then you've got the Joe Rogans and then you've got the AOCs. And so it kind of crosses the spectrum. And let's face it. Um, it's coming out now and has over the last couple of years um, that more and more people uh, are doing this anyway kind of thing. You know what I mean? That people yeah. are people are already partaking in this and doing it. And they're, you know, again, that black market is ruling that and you just don't know. And if the average person, you know, the entry level for an average person has got to be, I mean, super high to try and figure out where where do I obtain illegal psychedelics? You know what I mean? That, that, that's a that's a huge problem. We need to be able to have if, if somebody wants to be able to try that as a treatment, they need to be able to have access to it through a physician or whatever, or at least in the free market somewhere. Absolutely. I mean, we can't overemphasize this. The prohibitions don't make anything that's prohibited go away. They just drive it underground. And then because it's underground, you, uh, you reduce the reliability, you reduce the accountability. So you end up with a black market and whatever it is that people want that's been outlawed. So prohibition uh, makes things more dangerous. It doesn't eliminate them. 
get rid of the prohibition, look at it legally, make the uh, the substances um, purer, uh, have them come from reputable companies and, and sources, and then there's accountability if there's an issue. It's not just uh, from underground laboratories. Yeah, and of course, uh, nothing stopped the American government from using these these things when they wanted to for their own uses anyway. So I, I, at that point, I'm just I'm shaking my head on it. Um, it uh, final thoughts here on this topic, JD. I mean, where do we go from? How do we if if we are in support of this? And I don't know if all the listeners are. I certainly am. I certainly am seeing some results in family members who have been using some of these treatments. Which five years ago, if you told me, oh yeah, you know, they're we're going to give them ketamine, I'd have been like, excuse me, what? I mean, you know. Uh, but I'm seeing results, and uh, and I'm like, wow, that's amazing. So what do we do? How do we as citizens help help out with this? Well, I mean, it, the usual thing is contact your member of Congress and say that you're interested in this and you want more work on it. Uh, very often that's a dead end. But since there's actually movement in Congress to improve the legal status of these drugs, that may do something because they could join with other members of Congress, AOC, Dan Crenshaw, depending on which side of the aisle or on Rand Paul, Cory Booker, they can join with them and actually push to legalize um, research into this um, and usage of it eventually. So yeah. that's one thing. And also, if you're suffering from mental ailments yourself, talk to your uh, talk to your treatment professionals and see what's available. Um, maybe you can have access to something that'll work better than what you've been doing in the past if your current treatment is not doing the job for you. Yeah, I mean, there's talk specifically about this ketamine treatment, which I'm most familiar with at this point, is that it could eliminate the need for continuous use of other psychotropics and antidepressants because... Uh, these treatments, a series of treatments can, again, help recut those neural pathways in your brain. And you might not have to be on antidepressants. I mean, that's a, that's an amazing thing for a lot of people because we've got, I mean, what is it, a quarter, a third of the country is on some form of antidepressant at this point. Uh, if we could help eliminate that, I mean, that would be a huge deal uh, here in the country for sure. Uh, J.D. Tuchilli, our guest. J.D., can you stick with us and we'll talk about medical stuff here in just a sec? We'll talk about Absolutely. Your, your, latest, your latest piece. J.D. Tuchilli, our guest. Uh, we're going to continue with him here in just a second. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Uh, we'll be back with more, one final segment. And then Sarah Montalbano will be joining us in Hour 2. Uh, don't go anywhere. Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. The Michael Duke Show. We're broadcasting live through a series of tubes. Allowing all of these entities to provide streaming stuff going on on the, on the, the Internet. Well, it's kind of hard to explain. Sorry. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Okay, J.D. Tuchilli, our guest here, Reason Magazine, um... Yeah, I'm just, you know, I'm just surprised more and more, J.D. Well, I guess I'm not surprised. You know, the government's all okay to use it for themselves. And this goes back to, I was watching a documentary this weekend about uh, um, about uh, the Tuskegee Airmen and the dosage and, the you know, the Operation Sea Spray, where they basically sprayed bacteria all over the city of San Francisco and the use of LSD and microdosing of LSD without the people's knowledge. And I mean, all this, stuff. the government's all okay with doing things as long as they're doing it. Anybody else wants to do it for whatever reason, whether it's medical or recreational or therapeutic or whatever, 
they've got, you know, oh, no, you can't do it, but we can do it to everybody without even telling them. It's just it's astonishing uh, what, what where we're at these days. Yeah, I mean, I think we should emphasize the government has used the public as unwilling medical um, medical experimentation subjects on multiple occasions. So when, when government officials raise moral or ethical questions about drug use, they're entirely full of it. I mean, they do the most immoral, unethical things all the time. So letting us make our own decisions about our own lives um, is in and of itself moral and ethical. But we're also already starting from a better position than any government official could ever be in uh, when they try to criticize their ability to make their own judgments. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely uh, astonishing what uh, and, and I'll be honest with you. I when I got into some of the details of some of the things that have been done to people that the government has been forced to admit. Uh, I mean, of course, everybody, I think, knows about the Tuskegee Airmen, you know, infecting a whole with syphilis, okay, with syphilis, not just some random, you know, um, but, you know, the fact that they wanted, they sprinkled, uh, they sprinkled, uh, uh, you know, bacteria in San Francisco and they did all these other things. And you just go, wait, this is supposed to be our home of the free land of the brave. You know, we're supposed to be taking care of things. They're supposed to be there to protect us. And it turns out that they are not uh, protecting us as much as they, uh, much as they say, They've been, you know, they've been doing the fact that uh, Richard Nixon signed the treaty uh, in 1971 outlawing all chemical weapons. And then they find out that in 1975, the uh, the CIA has been retaining biological and chemical weapons in their own storage facilities against and nobody does anything about it. I mean, this is the this is where we live. And they want to tell us that we can't have a drink or pop a pill or have a piece of mushroom or do whatever it is that we want to do. And all of a sudden, I mean, to me, it's the ultimate of hypocrisy. It is hypocritical. I mean, every now and then, uh, I remember a couple of years ago, they found a random jar of, of smallpox virus sitting on a shelf in an old government lab in Atlanta. I mean, we know the government does this stuff, and they have no, they really have no business telling us what risks and what choices we should make for our own lives. So uh, I would put government desires aside entirely. And the only reason the government matters in this in a matter a situation like this is because if they legalize it, we'll have access to better quality sourcing on things like psilocybin and MDMA and ketamine. We won't have to worry about black market sourcing, impurities, uh, unknown concentrations. So that's the only reason the government uh, government desires matter in this case at all, is because clearing away the prohibition would make for an easier, safer market. Yeah. No, and we certainly have the yeah. right. Yeah. I would agree. I would agree because the question then becomes, you know, uh, when you start reading about the people uh, who are, I mean, luminaries, like well-respected people who've said, oh, yes, I occasionally microdose on this or I do, you know, mushroom or LSD or something like that. And you're like, wow, because, you know, it changed my, opened my mind and did all this. And you're like, okay, well, great. But how does the average person do that? How does the average person who doesn't have some kind of connection or something, how do they even get started? If you've got depression and you're dealing with Pete, how do you even, you can't even approach your doctor and say, I'd like to take some mushrooms to see if it helps me. You know, uh, I mean, they'd want to, they'd want to lock you up at that point. It, it, when it criminalizes a whole class of people and behaviors, um, I mean, government is obviously run out of control at that point. Oh, absolutely. I mean, some states have made access a little bit easier, but you still have to deal with federal licensing, the DEA. Uh, medical professionals are worried about 
having the ability to write prescriptions, which can be stripped away if they break federal law, no matter what the state law says. So the, the restrictions to the federal level are a huge problem, even when states ease access. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's ultimately frustrating. Uh, what uh, what else are you working on, JD? I know you just got this article we're going to talk about here with the uh, with the health stuff, but anything else you're working on? Um, right now, I mean, I've got pitches in for the next article or two, but I haven't heard back on the pitches, so I, <laughs> okay. I can't say what I'll be writing about. The piece out today, though, you know, is also touching on medical issues, uh, including my uh, my new cyborg self. Yeah, exactly. You are you are the new cyborg. Uh, I well, I'll be honest with you. I I had wished I read your article on Ukraine and the guns and everything else, which I thought was a fascinating article. Would make it. We'll probably discuss it on Firearms Friday again this Firearms Friday because it is such a good piece we'll talk about that as well but you've been doing some yeoman's work out there my friend so uh, just keep it up um, all right we're going to dive into this here uh jd tuchilli our guest the michael duke show common sense liberty-based free thinking radio like share subscribe ring the bell do all that stuff um, wherever you're watching wherever you're doing it uh we'd like to see it only 10 people have liked this show there's 40 in there The Michael Duke Show. Not your daddy. Wait, sorry. Not your daddy? Ooh, not your daddy's talk radio. Huh. Whew. I was scared for a second. Thought we were going down. Here's Michael Dukes and the show. No, no, not your daddy. Although my daddy is in the chat room. Uh, I saw him in there earlier today. Hi, Dad. How you doing? Uh, J.D. Tuchilli is our guest. Reason Magazine uh, is where he writes, and you'll find the majority of his stuff. Um, and uh, he's been doing some excellent work. Uh, he's got a new article out this morning, which I'll be honest with you, I have not even read yet. I saw the headline, but I haven't read it yet. Uh, but J.D. and I actually talked a little bit about this a while ago when he started talking about his um, uh, when he started talking about the the monitor that he was using on his heart. And we talked a little bit about the Internet of Things and everything else. Uh, but you had a, an exciting time over the holidays, an emergency pacemaker been put in. But so walk us through this article and tell us a little bit, uh, you know, talk, tell us a little bit about what's going on here. Absolutely. I mean, five weeks ago yesterday, I had a pacemaker installed on my chest, totally unplanned. Uh, but it, I'm alive, so it's a good thing. But when I uh, when I when I started talking to the doc after the installation, and again, there hadn't been time to discuss the details beforehand because it was an emergency, um, I discovered it's a high tech new pacemaker. It's remotely accessible. Um, I have a base station next to my bed. And uh, the base station downloads medical data from the pacemaker on a regular basis and sends it off through the cell network to my uh, cardiology team. Uh, the pacemaker can also be fine-tuned by a company representative with a tablet. And it's happened twice now where they sat there and I could actually feel the effect as they adjust the, uh, the rate and the responsiveness of the pacemaker to exertion. I tend to work out a lot, so I needed something that was more responsive to higher levels of exertion. Um, and it's... It, it, there's a cool factor to it, but it's also really creepy. Uh, the fact of the matter is I now have a radio transmitter in my chest that is constantly snitching on my medical condition to a team of physicians. 
And yes, I can be remotely hacked, and it's happened. Um, these pacemakers now, it's been an issue for about 15 years, 20 years, that the, as we add these technology to them, as they're remotely accessible by radio frequency, uh, by Bluetooth, the new generation now are Bluetooth connected, uh, as, you, uh, as you can program them from outside and, and extract data from, from them, um, that can be used maliciously. Uh, people have hacked into these pacemakers, and they've also um, they've hacked them to extract information, but they've also hacked them to affect their performance. So actually, an episode of Homeland ten years ago, uh, the fictional vice president in that show was assassinated when terrorists got hold, uh, got into his pacemaker, accelerated it, and killed him with a heart attack. And that's actually possible; it can be done, which is um, again a tad disturbing when you have one installed in your chest and controlling your heart space. So these are considerations and concerns that I have with the device that actually keeps me alive. It's a good thing to have it, but there are vulnerabilities in it and uh, there are privacy risks and, and other dangers that are, in, are inherent in having such a high-tech device. Yeah, no, we've seen it. And it's it's actually been the plot device of several shows that I've watched where somebody has a, you know, an internal insulin pump or a pacemaker or something like that that is Bluetooth or IP enabled and they're able to track it or, uh, you know, able to kill somebody by giving them a massive dose of insulin or, you know, tripping their pacemaker. I mean, it's the, the thing is, is that it's not just fiction. I mean, it's in the shows. It's not just fiction. It is hackable. And in the Internet of Things, uh, where everything from your, you know, from your coffee pot to your refrigerator to your pacemaker are all on the on the on the Internet. You know, there are bad actors out there who do things just because they want to watch the world burn. Uh, you know what I mean? They just do things because that's who they are. And that that could be a very scary situation. It can be. I mean, I'll point out that in 2017, the FDA put out a notice that said that 465,000 Abbott pacemakers uh, were vulnerable. They had a cybersecurity vulnerability that had to be uh, patched with a new firmware uh, download. Uh, the next year, they had to put out another FDA update on uh, Medtronic pacemakers because at the Black Hat Security Forum, uh, researchers revealed that they'd hacked into Medtronic pacemakers. Uh, so, I mean, these things have to be updated like any other computer connected device, something that's part of the network. Uh, there's always going to be cybersecurity vulnerabilities and there's always going to be a race between malicious actors and the security professionals who are supposed to keep them secure. Uh, Medtronics actually weren't even encrypted until that year. <laughs> that's the worst part. It's like open and free. It's like I'm at the coffee shop looking at my Wi-Fi and they're like Medtronic, whatever. Maybe I should connect to that and see what that does. I mean, that's <laughs> you know, I mean, I think he's had too much espresso. Let me turn it down for him. Uh, you know, and, and, and we laugh about it, but it is it is scary. But I mean, it's great that we have this technology. It's fantastic. I mean, you know, that some people are alive today because of technology that does make us nervous. But it's, you know, it's one of those things where we've got to, you know, we've got to balance out the risk and reward. And we've got to make sure we hold these medical companies accountable because, again, if they're not forced to keep the cybersecurity up on those kind of things, I don't know as they necessarily would at that point. Yeah, there's also another um, privacy uh, op you know, uh, vulnerability in this kind of technology. And that's when to get away from pacemakers, the government is actually talking now about using remote monitoring with implanted devices on opioid patients. 
so that they, because we know that there's the opioid crisis, there's a lot of uh, recreational use and abuse of opioids beyond those that are prescribed for pain. And the government wants to know, can we track opioid use so that you can detect physiological changes in people and, and tell that they're dosing too much beyond the parameters of their prescription, that they're overusing this stuff? That would be a deliberate privacy intrusion using this kind of remote technology. And it really is a potential. It's something that could be done now and may actually be mandated in the future. So as these technologies are available, become increasingly prevalent and very inexpensive, they're not just useful and helpful and potentially vulnerable to bad actors, but they can be misused by official policy. I would say misused because I find that very intrusive right. and creepy to have the government saying we want to monitor your drug usage so that we can penalize you if your device tells us that you're taking too much of your medication. I, I find that frightening. Well, right. I mean, an ankle bracelet is one thing. An ankle monitor is one thing. But actually putting something in your body and tattling on you every second of every day for what I mean, at some point we've seen you know, we've seen how many of these big government types, you know, they want to watch what you're you know eating in trans fat. They want to make sure you're not having too much sugar. They want to do all. I mean, what's to say that they don't say, OK, well, if you want, you know, you've got to put these in your body and you've got to test and you've got to report your own stuff or we'll put a piece of equipment in you that reports it on your own. And once you reach that level, uh oh, can't no more trans fats for you. Uh oh, no more sugar for you. No more. You know, I mean, it, it, it becomes it's very Orwellian in that in that regard. Yeah, the, the fact that we can have a steady stream of uh, data go from our bodies to uh, the authorities doesn't mean that we should have that stream of data. Um, we have to discuss how much of that we want out there because it can be done now and things that can be done will be done unless you have a big uh, have a discussion about it and decide where you want to draw the line. Right. It's not just an invasion of privacy on your end. We've seen how well the government protects your information on the other end, right? So if they're pulling all that info from you and storing it somewhere, because you know that they would, I mean, who's to say that that information, maybe no bad actors in the government do something with it, but there are always bad actors out there and they have shown themselves not to be good stewards of your information at that point. Uh, I'm sure that the database of our pharmacolo you know, pharmacological usage will be every bit as secure as the IRS database. Yeah, so. I'm sure it would be just right there. Oh, yeah. OK, I could see exactly what your taste in music and medicine is. That's exactly what we could see it all right there. Uh, all right, J.D., uh, we're down to the last couple minutes here. Um, and I do want to give you kudos as well for your latest article that you wrote uh, last week on the uh, uh, how what Russia, the war with Russia, uh, teaches us the value of private guns. We're going to go over that article in depth uh, on Friday, I think, uh, for Firearms Friday. But uh, give us your give us your your ninety second elevator pitch on that article and what what surprised you about it. Well, a, a society that is armed gets accustomed to being armed. Uh, before the war with Russia, Ukrainians had a relatively low support for the idea of recognizing a right to bear arms. Support for that has more than doubled since they, they found they had a need for private ownership of guns. And now Ukrainians, by and large, want to own guns. It has changed their culture in ways that I find pro-freedom and positive. And it's interesting to see.
What's going to be really interesting is when the dust settles on this whole conflict and the EU comes back and starts exerting pressure again because the EU is very anti-gun. They want none of their member states to have the ability for their citizens to be armed. And yet in Ukraine right now, it's what, 58 percent support the idea yeah, of being armed. And uh, and so it's going to be interesting to see there might be a lot of. Uh, uh, you know, battlefield pickups and closets and attics full of guns that uh, that probably never get reported back because they know what could happen tomorrow. You know what I mean? Uh, it's uh, it's kind of a shocking thing. I think that will be an interesting tipping point when the thing's all over and uh, and the EU starts exerting their pressure again. Final thoughts, JD Tuchili here. Uh, final thoughts we live in a big weird world and it's not getting any less interesting so um it, it, i always have something to write about <laughs> even if it's disturbing yeah no it's it's interesting stuff uh for sure and i love uh, i love your take on uh, on everything that's going on here uh, i'm glad you're with us uh and i'm thankful that you made it through the holidays and uh i hope that your health continues to improve and uh, we love talking to you my friend so we'll uh, i have a hold I'll have you hold on the line here just a second we'll be right back uh, don't go anywhere. That's JD Tuchili, folks, from Reason Magazine. You can find him at Reason.com. Subscribe to his newsletter, The Rattler. We'll have more on this on the other side. Sarah Montalbano, our guest. Oh, man. Yeah, I can't imagine. You know, who I want to find the guy who said, may you live in interesting times and punch him right in the mouth. You know what I mean? Because, geez, I, yeah. it couldn't get much more interesting right now, could it? It, it couldn't. I mean, I've, I'm getting calls from my son. He's a quarter Jewish. My wife is Jewish. Uh, and uh, he's concerned about the environment on campus, uh, you know, because of the, the, the protests in favor of the in favor of Hamas. So, I mean, uh, there's always something going on. Even if you think you've got your own life under control, the world will intrude no matter what you do. Yeah. And uh, and of course, people are now finding out. I, I feel like today we are uh, on the on a tipping point of some kind of people discovering more and more the distrust in government is higher than ever. We're seeing more and more, again, watching this documentary this last week uh, weekend of, uh, you know, all the, the points where the U.S. government has used American citizens as guinea pigs and how they've lied to us about so many things uh, that, it, you know, th it was, I knew a lot of it, but still to see it all laid out point by point is eye-opening to realize you know, government can be a good thing, but also when it grows so large that it invades every aspect of your life, then it's not about us anymore. It's about the retention of power and making sure that they know better than us how to live our lives. And that's the scary part for me. And that's why government officials are so dedicated to controlling information, because the world we have now is one where we can share information on what the government is doing. And it's not always um, reflecting well on what government officials Want, want to inflict on us. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, they want to get information. You know, I read a story one time where they were talking about um, that a war got started over the fact that one group of people wanted to release information to the public and the other ones wanted to control it. And I thought, well, that was a little far-fetched. But the older that I get, the more I realize that's a real thing. They don't want a lot of this information out there. They don't want people to decide for themselves. They want to control the narrative. And uh, that's a it's a spooky time to live in some ways. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful that we're here. Don't get me wrong. But in some ways, you're like, wow, it's an amazing time to be alive for sure. So, J.D., my friend, be well. All right. Take care of yourself. 
and uh, tell your wife thank you for paying such close attention to you. I, I appreciate her uh, in letting you know. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon, okay? Sounds good. Look forward to it. All right. Thanks so much. J.D. Tuchilli, uh, contributing editor for Reason Magazine, our guest uh, today. I see the bright and shining face of Sarah Montalbano over in the green room. She's got a little virtual donut there on the edge of her lip there. You might want to wipe that up. She's eating my virtual donuts and drinking my coffee right now. Uh, and uh, we'll see We'll see what she has to say. Hello, my friend. How are, oh, You're muted. You've muted yourself. Hello. Oh, there you are. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? You know what? It's uh, Monday. It's, uh, it's a Monday. I'm here. I, I looked at the ceiling and said thank you when I got out of bed this morning. So I'm feeling like it's a thumbs up. It's a positive day. So it's all good. You ready? You ready to dive into uh, dive into all this and, and get things going? As ready as I'll ever be. Okay, yeah. good, good. All right. Well, I'll put you back in the green room and we'll be back to you here in just a hot second. Uh, Sarah Montalbano, our guest, we're getting things ready. Uh, let me go back real quick in the chat room to see if there's anything. I see that there was a lot of new people and new names, um, that were, <laughs> that were talking about the benefits of psychedelics. Um, and I don't know if these are people who are just advertising their own things or what, but, uh, uh, psychedelics gave me the ability to see things in a different perspective. Um, have you tried microdosing? Anyway, there's some interesting uh, there's some interesting stuff in the chat room on this. I, for one, am in favor of giving people the ability to um, to take these forms of treatment if they'd like. If they want to do, you know, psilocybin, if they want to do microdosing with LSD, if they want to do, uh, you know, MD, you know, MDMA, if they, you know, if those are things that they would like to try to overcome. You know, things like depression and PTSD. I'm all for people to, you know, I'm all for them to be able to try that. Um, I, I have, a, I have, I have a, a my, my threshold for government uh, oversight and control of a lot of these things and telling us that they know better than us how to live our lives is, uh, is at an all time low. Let's just put it that way. Uh, I am not I'm not impressed. And I think we should be able to legalize these things so that we can get folks having access to it uh, uh, to a purer form. So the black market doesn't rule uh, in those situations. Um, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting stuff. Um, I never did quaaludes. Uh, Timothy Leary knows all about the synthetic ones. Let's see. Um um, if they create new pathways, uh, this is Terry talking about, I was talking about ketamine and other things, creating new neural pathways in the brain. Would it help with Alzheimer's? I know that there was some discussions as to whether or not that would help with Alzheimer's research. Um, and there's a question on it. Could it potentially, um, uh, it's interesting here. Um, Oh, and Michael Gerhardt said, and, and I am not aware of this, but he says the latest studies show that psilocybin mushrooms have shown great results for dealing with dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that we need to uh, uh, I think we need to throw off the shackles of uh, of uh, the federal government and of uh, and if some people, again, who are. I don't know, judgmental, puritanical, whatever, if there's a way to make it work. Uh, to help people live their lives better, 
then why shouldn't we, you know, why shouldn't we be able to look at that? Why shouldn't we be able to try for ourselves? I mean, what, you know, why shouldn't we be able to be adults on it? Um, all right. Uh, we're coming up on it. Time to go. Sarah Montalbano is our guest. We're going to get into this here. The Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Hour two is right now. Here we go. Put that thing back in its holster. We haven't gone anywhere. I don't understand. Check out the MichaelDukesShow.com for information on how to get access to the podcast. Welcome to the party, pal. The, the Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Live around the world on the internet at MichaelDukeshow.com and across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or FM translator. Good morning and welcome to Hour 2 of the Big Radio Show. We just finished up with J.D. Tuchelli, who's a contributing editor for Reason Magazine. Had a great conversation with him about uh, the potential in the U.S. for um, legalizing psychedelics for the treatment of PTSD, ADHD, depression, uh, a bunch of other things. It was a fascinating discussion, and if you missed it, you can go back and listen to it on the podcast, which is available wherever you find podcasts, including Spotify, uh, or you can watch it on the replay on Facebook or YouTube as well if you'd like. Hour two of the program this morning, we're bringing it back into the uh, bringing it back into the state stuff, uh, and we're going to dive down into um, uh, some discussions with one of our favorite guests, uh, Sarah Montalbano, who is with the Alaska Policy Forum. She used to be the educational analyst for the Policy Forum, but she's gotten a promotion, and unfortunately I've forgotten what her new promotion is. But she's about to tell us what it is. Sarah Montalbano, our guest this morning, to discuss education, the legislature, new stuff, and more. Good morning there, young lady. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm doing well. How about yourself? Good, good. And you are now the policy manager for the Alaska yes. Policy Forum. What does that mean? Yeah, what What does that mean? Double rainbow. What does it that mean? It means I do everything all the time. Um, <laughs> no, so I, it means in in function that I'm expanding my role to talk about you know state fiscal issues, healthcare, right. our other policy priorities, as well as education. So. Well, well, that's good because you're. Uh, your uh, your your uh, uh, take on on education has been edu- has been informative and educational for many many folks out there. You've uh, done a great job on that, and I knew you'll I know you'll do a fantastic job on the rest of this. So, um, but let's let's start off with the with the new stuff here. Of course, we know that uh, some of the big policies that are going to be discussed in the upcoming session uh, include 
education, obviously. We saw the big rally in Anchorage this weekend with, you know, 100 people there or whatever. And uh, the question, you know, all the newspapers are asking the question, oh, are they going to try and override the governor's veto, which I think has got zero chance of actually happening. But, I mean, they're putting it out there uh, because I think at this point the news media is – complicit in some of the stuff that that's going on right now but let's talk about education and what you see coming up here in this session and uh, you know challenges and and everything else let's let's talk about that we'll start there absolutely so first of all i want to just say alaska policy forum we're a 501c3 nonprofit nonpartisan organization so don't take anything i'm saying here to be an endorsement or opposition to a specific piece of legislation we're just talking about the policies as far as education funding accountability outcomes issues um i'm really you know i'm hoping that we will find some sort of compromise here so that we get those transparency and accountability components to any increases in funding because i think what we're seeing here is that the increases in funding we've had in the past simply aren't changing things for our student outcomes. I've said it before, I'll say it again, you know, we're 49th on the National Assessment of Educational Progress in fourth grade reading. Anywhere between a quarter and a third of students are proficient on the statewide exams. So, you know, schooling isn't working in this sense for, you know, two thirds of our students. Right. Um, and that's that's really concerning to me. And we're already spending an inordinate amount of money. Um, I think the last I saw, average school per student spending is about $25,000 in fiscal year 2022. Um, so we're just not getting the outcomes we, we want to see from that kind of uh, spending. So what I'm hoping for here is we see some, you know, tie in there or at the very least expand, you know, options that will give students more education freedom because if you're not getting what you need in your school you ought to be able to find a different solution right well and and we've talked about this and and the reason i brought up the news media thing is because again they seem to have been banging on this drum very hard of the idea somehow that we have been underfunding education that we haven't we haven't had an increase in education that we haven't uh, adjusted anything um but you you ran the numbers you went back and showed that you know in the last 20 years we've increased education by a significant amount was it 20 30 percent i mean it's been a pretty significant amount of increase over the last 20 years just the last 20 years in this state yeah so i do encourage you all to look on our website alaskapolicyforum.org i did run those numbers and since about 2002 it's you know 20 30 percent increase um there was a huge you know funding formula shift back in the early 2000s um and that that has changed things a lot for our state um, we've seen over that time, too, I've run the numbers on that, we've seen a growth in the administrators and uh, staff members who aren't doing teaching functions, too. And so I think what the most important thing to keep in mind here in this discussion is, you know, how we spend the education dollars, dollars we're putting in is way more important than just increasing the overall budget or, you know, what that magic number is going to be. I don't think there is a magic number. I don't think we will ever reach a point where we say, great fantastic. Our schools are fully funded and now our students are successful, right? It's not that the money isn't relevant or can't make a difference, but it does need to be used in ways that help classrooms or teachers' salaries and make a difference in the student outcomes. Um, And, you know, we see a lot of really successful models in the school choice space too, that are doing a lot more with less. So 
that is mostly what I would like to see. Right. Well, and, and you mentioned, again, the accountability, the NEEP and where we're at academically. And Alaska historically has been almost always in the bottom half somewhere, uh, education-wise, and yet we continue to spend more than almost any other state in the country on this. Now, some will say that has to do with geographic considerations. You know, some some districts are spending $100,000 per student, so that drives the average up and everything else. And there is some to that, but the bottom line is, is that even... You know, there was some discussion in the last legislative cycle about uh, putting some accountability. OK, we'll vote for this if we tie some metrics to it. And it was immediately riddled full of bullets. They said, no, we're not we're not going to vote for that. Well, wait a minute. We, we've we if we've if you're going to spend them, we've got to have some kind of framework or guideline for accountability and what's being taught. And uh, that that seems to be there seems to be a lot of resistance to that kind of idea. Um, and I don't know exactly why. Yeah, the politics of this is really fascinating and disappointing to me. I really don't see this as a partisan issue to say, like, we want to have, you know, some results for the money we're putting in here. Um, you know, it's it's really concerning to me that districts are expecting, you know, just a blank check. And it doesn't even need to be the accountability for the outcomes. It could just go as far as to say, you know, here's transparency, here is how we are spending the money, and let people decide for themselves if those are appropriate ways to spend the funds. Um, you know, I, I would really love to see something like that. I don't know if the politics on it is going to change very much. Um, but there have been a lot of proposals. And as you said, you know, all of them got shot down. Well, and there's no guarantee at this point um, that if they do, I mean, let's just say hypothetically, they override the governor's veto. They get the extra 80 plus million dollars in there. And so the BSA has gone up, you know, the thousand dollars that they wanted it to and everything else. The problem is, is that the track record shows that the majority of this, I mean, the, the, not all this money goes into the classroom. In fact, the you know, a lot of it, up to almost half of it, goes outside the classroom. In some in some places, not even the majority of it ends up in the classroom. It ends up in the, again, getting sucked up in that administrative overhead. I mean, you talked about some districts that have two, three, sometimes four administrators for every teacher. And, you know, th that that I don't think that's what the average citizen envisions when they say putting a dollar in the classroom, because that's how it's framed, putting more money in the classroom. Uh, but in the long run, it ends up being pennies on the dollar that end up in the classroom when you're spending that kind of money. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And it's it's so crucial for us to make sure that this funding is being used in productive ways. I mean, we clearly are seeing models that are working uh, for students to have their outcomes. There's, there's, you know, plenty of ways, but I think we can all agree that it's not the administrators that are making the difference. The administrators aren't there having the aha moments with students, you know, they're, they're, they perform very important functions, but it is not, you know, the primary thing that we're trying to do. And I think, yeah, a lot of it just gets lost in the, the media discussion around it and to say, you know, this, this, blank check is going to obviously go no it doesn't have to go to the teachers then there's a good chance that it won't right um so, yeah 
I, I absolutely agree with well, that. Well, it's been almost 30 years since there there used to be a mandate on that kind of stuff for the BSA and other things that 70% of those dollars needed to hit the classroom. That was the that was the thing. And that has been that was reversed in the 90s and it has never gone back. You've never seen that kind of penetration of money going directly into the classroom when you've done it since then. Uh, we've seen the growth instead of the administrative side and the overhead side and everything else. Um, and, you know, you've mentioned a couple times we have examples of places that things have been done correctly. We've seen and this has always been my question. If we could take a grocery store method of going into the grocery store, taking the things we want, leaving the things we don't. Why don't we go to states like Florida with their read by nine program and then put that in? Why don't we go to states that have done well, that have great scholastic outcomes for a lesser investment and figure out what did they do exactly and adapt that for what we're doing here. But even the <clears throat> even the even the read by nine program, which has got a great track record, was 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 fought tooth and nail in the legislature. I mean, it was a struggle to get it across the line. And you're like, what this? Why? Why is this such a problem? I, I am so, so glad you mentioned that because Read by Nine was definitely a, a struggle and we're still seeing backlash to it right now. Now we're seeing the, the argument that it's being really expensive and, you know, we need more funding in order to implement this program. So, you know, I, I think there's, there's a few basic things that if we're going to have this public school monopoly, we should make sure are being taught in the public schools. And I think reading by grade three is definitely one of those things. Right. Um, you know, I, I I really like what Florida does with its school funding model. My uh, recollection of it is that it has a lot of incentives for outcomes. And so, you know, these districts get a certain amount of money for, you know, every student that by grade three is hitting their, you know, their reading benchmarks and math benchmarks. And every student by the eighth grade who's ready to go into high school on certain benchmarks. And then things like high school accountability too, they're getting paid for actually educating the students instead of just having that dropped in their lap. Um, and so I, I do like a lot of things that Florida does. Um, you know, it's obviously not perfect, but it has an enormous school choice uh, ecosystem, too. That's right. adding a lot of competition to the public schools. Well, that was and that was my next question as far as school choice, uh, you know, charter schools, uh, correspondent schools, uh, you know, many of these other things. In Alaska, we've done it. I mean, we've done a lot of heavy lifting on like the correspondence type schools and have done some great work. Uh, at, during the pandemic, the, they were lifesavers for many parents, and many parents discovered the ease at which it worked and, and didn't go back to school. In fact, we're seeing an overall decline in enrollment across the state in brick-and-mortar schools because of it, uh, I think in part because of it. Um, but school choice uh, in that regard, that's got to be a key component moving forward, doesn't it? I agree completely. And what I love, the correspondent school enrollment in you know 2020 when all of this pandemic stuff started happening, it nearly doubled and it's still about 50% higher than it was pre-pandemic. Um, so, you know, I it's very clear to me that a lot of parents tried it and they liked it and they're sticking with it. And even those that didn't, even those that said, okay, now that these emergencies over, you know, I'm gonna put my kid back in the public school. They still got to benefit from this. They still had that option. And because the state of Alaska made it available, it was there to, you know, save their child's education right. for, for, you know, dramatics there. But, you know, it really does make a difference. And those are the people, 
you know, I love talking to you, Michael, but those are the people we should talk to <laughs> is those parents who actually had it make a difference to their kids. Uh, because I think those are the, the people who know best that school choice is a lifesaver. Well, here on the program, it was amazing to see there was probably maybe three or four who commented in the chat room over the course of the time between the pandemic when they shut schools down and then the, the you know, that came on and said, my kid, we, we started doing homeschooling, you know, we didn't believe you, Mike, we started doing homeschooling and now my kid is done. She, they graduated, you know, by the, by December, they had finished the year. They loved it. Or we loved it. My kid loves doing the pacer. You know, I had at least three or four people come to me directly and say, we loved this. It changed our lives. This is what we're doing. And I think it it was to them, it was so shocking that it was as easy as it was. And, and I think that's part of the whole narrative of you can only do it with brick and mortars and you can only do it with qualified teachers and yada, yada, yada. Uh, I mean, I think there has to be a paradigm shift there uh, in regards to that. Quickly, uh, your thoughts before we go to break here. Uh, I'm really excited about the proposals that are going to expand school choice access to all sorts of different options. Of course, if you love your public school, you can keep it. Um, but, you know, that that just isn't working for a lot of people. So that's what I'm hoping we see is greater transparency and accountability, as well as greater access to these options. Sarah Montalbano is our guest, Alaska Policy Forum. We've been talking about education. Up next, we're going to discuss employment find benefits, some of the other big issues that are coming up in this next legislative cycle. Uh, we will continue right after this, The Michael Duke Show, common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Sarah Montalbano, our guest. Running on 100% pure beard power. Oh, also some coffee we dip our beard in coffee ha <laughs> nice beard the michael duke show we're gonna get sarah an honorary beard uh <clears throat> welcome back uh, to the program sarah montalbano is our guest um yeah it's pretty amazing uh, it, it was amazing and humbling to me to see people in the chat room over the course of about five or six months there, who basically all said, you know, kind of the same thing, which was, my kids love it. Uh, I had two of them basically say their children had already finished the school year before the, it was before December. And they're like, because they got a chance to go at their pace um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and just everything else. And just to give people that opportunity, um, which, again, the mainstream, you know, the, the brick and mortar folk, they just don't want to see that. They don't want to see the options. They don't want to see the choice. Uh, Donna said uh, school choice is the solution. Competition brings improved outcomes. It's basic economics. But see, they the, the people who are in the brick and mortar side, they feel like it's a zero sum game. If somebody wins, then somebody else has to lose kind of thing. Instead mm -hmm. of a rising tide floats all boats, it is, oh, well, if, if, if school choice is there, it means that somebody else, but no, it means that if you lose that child, you have more chance now to focus on the children that remain. You can increase. And if you are going to be competitive and if your solution is better, as you claim, then more people will come to you. The better your outcomes, the more people that will come to you. But when we see, 25, 30% of the students are only, that's all that's proficient in the, you know, reading and math and those kind of skills. 
it's not a very good product that you're producing. So keep saying that we need to keep sending them back there makes no sense to me as a parent. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's absolutely the case. And, you know, there's studies to that effect who have found, you know, really positive outcomes, not just on the kids who get to go to the charter school or the home school or, you know, private school, whatever option they're choosing. It's not just those students who are benefiting, you know, what the outcomes in the schools that they would have gone to has increased too because of the competition. So I, I really do think it's one of those things that's going to improve things for everyone. Right. Um, and, you know, even those parents who love their public school and want to keep going to that public school, sure. that's going to improve their situation, too. Yeah. Well, we keep talking about classroom size. Well, if some of the students decide to be homeschooled um, or go to a charter school or whatever, if they're homeschooled, that's the ultimate, uh, you know, teacher-student ratio, right? I mean, one-to-one -one mm -hmm. or one-to-two or something. Uh, but mm -hmm. as those kids leave the brick-and-mortar schools, then their teacher-to-student ratio goes down as well. So that's actually better in some ways. Oh, but we'd lose money. And, but again, you can do more with less. I mean, it, it's super frustrating to watch this kind of whole thing keep coming down. And the fact that they continued to want it to shut down, not just here in Alaska, but across the country, you know, these schools remain closed for so long uh, and damaged. You know, they said it's a generational loss at this point that so many kids lost lost time in their education. Uh, we've got to find a way to to make this better. And uh, and and again, I think just throwing more money at the problem. I mean, if twenty five thousand per student is not enough, how much is 30, 35, 50? A hundred. How much is it? How much is enough to make it work? And that's, you know, and how much is getting sucked up and absorbed by overhead and, and administration and everything? I mean, it's just it's frustrating, to say the least. Um, all right. Uh, we're going to move over into a discussion about defined benefits um, and uh, because that's going to be the next thing. Right. That's going to be the next big push. We've already seen it. It was introduced last session um, and some of the numbers are mind-boggling. I mean, the, the fiscal note on one of them was $1.2 billion a year um, in, in additional costs. And I, I at that point, you got to be like, what? I mean, we're already, you know, half a billion dollars uh, in arrears in deficit spending to begin with. And now we're talking about, I, I just... I just don't even know what to say. So uh, if uh, if you're ready, uh, I'm 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 ready. How was your holiday, by the way? Very good, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was very nice. Did, did you get relaxation? Did you spend it all on the couch like I did? <laughs> most of it, yeah. <laughs> That's what I did. I spent most of it on the couch, uh, and then my daughter bought me a video game for Christmas that I've been wanting for a long time, and then I spent way too much time on the couch. So it's all it's all good. <laughs> All right, uh, we'll hold the line. Sarah Montalbano is our guest. We're going to continue here. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Like, share, subscribe, ring the bell, do all the things. 20 people liked. 40 people in the chat room. 20 people liked. What's up with you people? Here we go. Public enema number one. Oh, wait, sorry. Uh, enemy. Public enemy number one, which makes more sense. On the other hand, he's a little bit of a pain in the uh, Michael Duke show. I don't think I am. Sarah, do you think I'm a pain in the, you know, I mean, I just, I don't, I don't see that. Maybe. No, so I don't think so. 
unless unless you're against me, in which case I'm a true pain in your. Uh, anyway, uh, Sarah Montalbano is our guest. She is the policy manager for Alaska Policy Forum. Uh, now we're diving into new stuff. Sarah's been in education with us so many times. Now we're diving into some other things. Uh, the other big thing, so there's like two or three big issues that are going to be coming out of this session. Uh, education, obviously, is the one. The other one we know is coming is this movement to try and take us back to defined benefits for state employees. Now, just for backstory for folks who don't know, we were on defined benefits for many years. And at one point, we were $13 billion in arrears in unfunded liabilities to that pension fund. And at that point, the legislature decided to move from a defined benefits to a defined contribution, more of a 401k style plan. Uh, And people have been upset about that for a long time because a defined benefits plan is a real gravy train plan. I mean, the government pays for everything. We're constitutionally mandated. We still owe $6 billion in unfunded liability to the first time we were in defined benefits. But now there's been a hue and cry to move us back. Uh, There was a bill introduced last uh, session uh, in both the House and the Senate. um, And the price tag on those bills, one plus billion dollars a year, moving forward, not to mention what the unfunded liability might look like. Sarah, give us your thoughts on defined benefits and the and this push to move us back. I think move the needle back. But what what are, what are your thoughts? What is what is AFP's position on this? Uh, we we are really um, concerned about the costs to the state on this. And we've done some research with the Pension Integrity Project at the Research Found, uh, Reason Foundation, excuse me, and they've found, you know, enormous costs, and they're not convinced that it's going to help any recruitment or retention issues. Um, what we tend to see here, um, first of all, let me give you the numbers. Let's back up. Um, you know, this defined benefit pension, you already mentioned, we're already $6 billion in the hole. Um, and there's a couple bills, SB 11, um, that they examined, and they said that could add $9.2 billion because of their clawback provisions, not per year, but to future state budgets. Um, and, you know, SB 88 would add about $8.6 billion. Um, and so all of these things, I think there's a really rosy, optimistic assumptions about the discount rate. They're assuming a rate of return that's higher than pretty much any other state pension plan assumes, uh, which I think just probably is not going to happen because we might be heading into, you know, some economic downturns, who really knows. But the fact that they're saying that this is going to be, you know, cost neutral and things like that, that's just not really true. Um, And then moving on to the recruitment and retention issues, um, you know, it's just not it's not going to fix those problems because what we're seeing is a younger generation of workers come into the workforce. Millennials and Gen Z, like myself, we're just not going to stay in the same job for 20 or 30 years. Like the workforce has fundamentally changed. And when we make assumptions looking back and saying, well, you know, these Gen Xers on the defined benefit plan, they were staying for a very long time and now we're seeing shorter tenures. Like, of course, that, that is what's going to happen when your demographics are changing uh, right. for state employees. Well, and there's a taste change to that, too, because it's just I was doing some reading here last year, not about retirements or state budgets or anything else, but they were talking about specifically just about employees across the country. And they were talking about Gen Z and millennials changing jobs and, you know, changing jobs, you know, up to a dozen times in their lifetimes. 
Uh, it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just nobody was just going to find a career track and be like, I'm going to be in this job for 25 years. That's my goal. That may have been the, the goal of uh, the boomers and of Gen X and things like that. But for the most part, that's just not how the new cadre, the new generations are thinking. And by the way, this whole problem with retention and everything, you know, like teachers especially, they're having a problem across the country. This is not a uniquely Alaska problem where Alaska can go, oh, we can fix it. Oh, we just got to, you know, no, this is a problem across the nation right now. And to say that just by doing this, this will fix our problem, I think is naive at best and cynical at worst. Oh, I, I agree completely. And I think there's only so much you can do to change the incentives that younger workers actually have. And, you know, the Reason Foundation has cited a couple of really high quality sources. So I encourage you all to go to our website and check that out. But you know, the basic gist of it is that these early career employees aren't thinking a lot about retirement benefits. It's way more important to them to have things like, you know, salary growth and a really good health insurance plan than it is for them to be thinking about retirement, you know, down the line in 30 years. Um, so there's, I think, just looking at the revealed preferences of employees show that this is not as important to them as, you know, this discussion is making it sound like. Um, and, you know, there's also some evidence that defined benefit pensions accelerate turnover for those late career teachers. There's a, another good study, you know, that these teachers start leaving once they have these really good retirement plans. And those that stay, you're purchasing another year or two of their time for a really high cost. Um, so I, I really am not convinced that retention is going to be helped by returning to a defined benefit pension, no matter whose plan, you know, you, you want to get behind. Um, I, I just, I don't think it's going to be effectual and it's going to expose the state to a lot of fiscal risk. Well, and I think if you look at the history of defined benefits across the country, that proves true. Uh, Delta Airlines, General Motors, there's a lot of private companies. They had to be bailed out by the federal government because their defined benefits plans were so bad. Most municipalities and states are not doing defined benefits anymore for the same reason, because those are costs. You're, you're, you're factoring and guaranteeing on costs today that you have no idea what they'll be in the future. And that's the problem because you're defining you're going to receive X benefit today. You're going to receive that same benefit in 20 or 30 years, regardless of what the cost is. So there's no way to control those costs. And of course, as you mentioned earlier, the pie in the sky returns that they talk about, that's what got the first defined benefits program in trouble is the under uh, underestimating or overestimating of the returns of the funds and, and things like that. I mean, that's what got us in the hole to begin with. So to go back to this seems like to just be borrowing trouble. Yeah. And other states look at us and they're thinking, what are you doing? Because what they're trying to do is move towards the D.C. plans. They're not trying to, you know, have all these unfunded liabilities. And honestly, the principle of the issue is that the state needs to be able to pay its obligations because these employees have worked hard for the state. You know, they're ready to cash out at retirement. And if the state is not able to pay for those benefits, then that's just that's a broken promise. And, you know, I think DB could be really irresponsible about that. I mean, I agree. And I think defined again, it's the unknowns of defined benefits that worry me. Uh, yeah. Not just the not just the initial price tags, uh, yeah. which we are already seeing could be a billion dollars a year over the next decade. But it is the unknowns of what happens 20 years out 
that uh, that really starts to worry me uh, uh, about this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Now, there are other options in regards to this. Uh, I know the governor had put forward the plan to have some bonuses. Uh, you know, like you said, the the general generation uh, Gen Z and, and millennials are more focused on salary increases or, you know, better environments. It seems like those th- those generations are now more focused on things like flexibility, remote work, the ability to structure, you know, some time off and do those things, uh, you know, better leadership uh, in inside better management inside the things. I think those are probably things that we should be focusing on rather than, you know, again, trying to create this pie in the sky 30 year plan down the road. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I am just not convinced that, you know, we're going to have what we want from it. And yeah, DB is just such a huge unknown because you are promising that fixed amount to that employee whenever they retire, you know, once they're they're vested, you know, that's what you are going to pay them, no matter how long, you know, they've really been there or not. Um, and, you know, DB is also a huge issue for employee mobility. Um, you know, pl- employees that want to leave are often, you know, really worried that they're not going to be able to take their their pensions with them and what they've the work they've put in so far. So I think this is just kind of a relic of an outmoded way of working. Um, and you know, there's just other factors that make more of a difference to most people. Sarah Montalbano is our guest, policy manager at the Alaska Policy Forum. Um, Let's talk for a minute here about taxation, because I know that that's going to probably the governor had proposed putting a sales tax in. I know some of the more conservative members had said that they would entertain discussion on a sales tax. Uh, I know there's been Brad Keithley's talked about a flat tax. Uh, the fiscal policy working group said that some form of new revenue taxation revenue would have to be part of the prob- part of the equation because. We haven't been able to live within our means. Uh, AF, uh, APF is not uh, is not a fan. I'm assuming of that. Yes, uh, Alaska Pol- Policy Forum. We do not support the creation or raising of you know other taxes on hardworking Alaskans uh, simply because the state government hasn't figured out how to live within their means. Um, you know, we certainly recognize that oil and gas revenues are a volatile source of income for the state, but that's just really all the more reason that the state needs to try to budget for the lean times and then, you know, not spend prodigiously when the times are good. Um, so I think that's, you know, our basic position on the issue. Um, there's a lot of taxation proposals coming up in this legislative session. Um, and that's that's really kind of disappointing to us because we think we can do a lot on the spending side of the equation first before, you know, attempting to raise taxes on Alaskans. Well, and of course, the problem here is, is that I've been with you for many years on that no new taxes. Of course, then we've had the PFD tax, which is uh, the taking of the PFD, which is essentially a tax, a pseudo tax. Um, But the problem is we've been harping on this no new taxes, cut government for years. I mean, I've been talking about this for 25 years, 24, almost 25 years. And yet, we cannot find the political will to cut. So the question becomes, then what do we do? We just give up all of the PFD, have all that be taxed, and then we'll be faced with revenue. I mean, this that's that's my question. If we don't do something, what's going to happen? Interesting. Yeah. So I, we first of all, we don't really comment on the permanent fund dividend. So I'm going to avoid that side of the question. But I do think, you know, there's things we can do um, to try to actually get the spending stuff to happen. 
um, you know, actually having a meaningful spending cap would go a long way. The spending cap we have in our constitution is just so high that it doesn't make a difference. Um, and, you know, so budgeting that way makes a lot of sense. You know, having a budget that really only adjusts for population growth and inflation would be a good thing too, like our responsible Alaska budget formula. Um, and, you know, also trying to propel economic growth in the state, I think will bring in, you know, more of that income, maybe from the oil and gas producers or, you know, corporate taxes um, and things like that. So, you know, we're we're enthused about um, the interest there is in cutting corporate tax rates. Alaska has um, one of the most complicated corporate tax systems. I think it has the most number of brackets and it's one of the highest marginal tax rates, too. Uh, so if we simplify that, that's going to promote economic growth, and we will have some research for, forthcoming on that. Um, and you know, I, I just I do think it's it's a tricky question, um, but it is one that I'm concerned about opening the door to new taxes because we are going to have the um, you know just the the implementation is going to be a lot harder than it is for legislators in future years to say. Okay, let's up the points. Right, percentage. Points, that's always you know? that's always the worry. You know, you, yeah. do, you you go through all the setup, you spend all the money putting the departments together, do everything else. Oh, it's a really low tax, and it's really easy for them to say, oh, let's not turn it. Let's turn it from two to three. Oh, let's turn it from three to six. Oh, let's turn it from six to nine. It makes it easier for them to get access to more money. I I, I agree with that, and I understand that. Uh, we got to go here. Uh, we're going to come back with more. Sarah Montalbano is our guest, The Michael Duke Show. Common Sense Radio. Listened to by more staffers in Juno than any other show because their bosses told them to. And after what they just heard, oh man, they're going to be pissed. You're a bad, bad man. The Michael Duke Show. Sarah Montalbano, our guest here in the chat room. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some other things, of occupational licensing and other stuff, which is one of my favorite topics, actually. You wouldn't know it, but that's actually, oh, one, really? of my, that's actually one of my it's favorite. It's one of my Yeah, no, I just, I just, I get so irritated. You mean I got to beg? You, I got to beg permission from the king to do what I want to do to support my family? Oh, you. I mean, I'm sorry. It's just, I'm, I'm sorry. This is, I'm just, uh Sorry, I get a little irate about that. Um, somebody had a question about education, web, social. I'm looking for the comment. I should have started when it went by. But um, uh, school competition, uh, there we are. Uh, somebody wanted to say, have Sarah comment on. Um, uh, I'm looking for, I, I took note of it. What was it? It was something was about it? web and social Web and social issues, secure, secure, web and social issues. Check for... out social emotional learning. Oh, here we Is go. Here we go. Kim Bates says, can you talk about oh. the web social security issue with educators? Okay. So that's what it was. It was social security because educators don't pay into social security. And then somebody else asked later, can we get them reinstated into social security as a way to help with their retirement, et cetera, et cetera. So any comment on that? 
Um, we haven't taken a solid position on that one. I don't think it's a good idea because I personally don't think Social Security is going to be around much longer or oh, no. going yeah. to be in the same form. And I think a lot of teachers and, you know, everyone should really prefer to handle their own retirement and put it in their own private investments first. Um, you know, I, I really do think people will be responsible with their own money. Um, and you know, you have that incentive, uh, social security is a Ponzi scheme. So <laughs> I don't yeah. personally think that's a good idea or something that, you know, teacher, teachers should be excited about. Yeah, no, I mean, social security is set to run out of money the year before I retire at this point. And I'm just like, yep, I don't think I'm going to get anything at this point. I'm going to be screwed and tattooed. I wish I had had all that money that I put into social security that I could have directed myself. I mean, quite honestly, the money that I and my employers put into social security, um, you know, just think about what I would have been able to do with that money if I had opted instead to take that money and put it into uh, something with a, you know, 3% return or 4% return uh, over the entire course of my life, you know, it, it, millions of, it could be a million dollars, you know, at that point. Um, Your rate of return would have been so much better than what you will probably get paid out. And even, you know, what you, what you could get under the benefits today is way less than what you would have gotten if you, you were able to control it yourself. Yeah. I, and that's what I, that's what I don't understand. I mean, that people would rather have a sure thing I mean, kind of the, the, the boiling down the defined benefits thing. People would rather have a sure thing than to take their retirement or their future into their own hands. They'd rather have a guarantee than, I mean, if somebody had a defined contribution plan, a 401k plan, and they started, you know, contributing when they were in their, you know, early 20s or whatever, by the time they hit retirement age, if it's a, you know, if it's a, it's not a significant, if it's a, a legitimate portion of your income, 5% or 10% of your income every year, and you're making, you know, 50, 60, 80, hundred thousand dollars a year, you'll have a, you'll have a significant nest egg by the time it's all said and done. But I think people keep going back to, we want everything to be guaranteed. And the problem in, in life is that there are no guarantees at this point, but they want everybody to do it and they want everybody else to pay for it. That's the, that's the big problem. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we we have a cultural problem around that because it's the same thing that we think about with education. We think, you know, gosh, you know, school choice isn't going to work because our parents going to make the right decisions for their kids. I don't know. You know, maybe they're not going to be responsible with it. And I, I treat that argument kind of the same way, too, is just like people want to be comfortable. Sure. But if you take them out of having that comfort as an option, they will absolutely do the right thing and you know, align their incentives with what they want. Right, exactly. All right, well, we're going to talk about uh, occupational licensing and then kind of whatever else we want to talk about, any other things, rail belt issues. I don't know what else uh, APF has been focusing on, but I know we've been talking about energy and rail belt. That's another big thing that's going to come up. But occupational licensing? Oh, yes, please. Can we talk about that? Uh, we're going to jump into that. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Oh, I'm sorry. I lied. I've got I forgot to change the timer. We still got a minute. I was uh, I was about to jump. I was jump about to jump into sixty seconds of music there. So anyway, Sarah, final thoughts before we go back for the final. It's Monday, okay? I haven't had my coffee yet. Uh, anyway, what uh, final thoughts here before we jump back into it? 
Yeah, I define benefit pensions really concern me and everyone I've talked to in other states are, they're just really disappointed that Alaska is considering going back. Yeah, they're shaking their heads like, what were you guys thinking? That's like going backwards. It really is. It's it's going backwards. I don't know how we could even be considering it, especially even with the rosy numbers. Rob, Rob Myers said something earlier. We don't have enough time for me to find it, but he basically said there's a report coming out. Uh, in the next couple of days, and from what he's heard, it's not good as to what it means. So I want to I want to hear more about that. All right, here we go. The Michael Duke Show, common sense, liberty based, free thinking ra- 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 radio. Sarah Montalbano is our guest. Okay. Um, <laughs> we're about to talk, uh, finish up today with Sarah Montalbano from the Alaska Policy Forum. It's been a fastest two hours in radio today. You cannot believe it. Um, but I, we're going to get into a topic which is a pet peeve of mine. Now, immediately, everybody just grabbed their drawers and they were like, oh, my God, he said pet because he knows that I can go off on like a tangent when we get to pet peeves. But this is a pet peeve <laughs> for me. This is an absolute pet peeve for me. Uh, we, we could talk about we might talk about rail and, and uh, rail belt and energy and stuff like that. But this could be a whole segment, I think, all by itself. Occupational licensing. And for those of you who don't know what that means, that means that. If you're a barber, you got to go beg the state's permission to cut people's hair. If you're a, a you know a nail technician, you got to go. If you're a, I mean, there's a, a million different things that you can be occupationally licensed for. And the problem is, is that if you move here from another place and you've been cutting hair for 20 years, that doesn't matter. You got to come here and again beg the king's permission to, uh, to 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 you know do your livelihood. And that just it is so. Irritated. I think you should just come here, a practical course, a practical test. Can you do it? Okay, you're good to go. Uh, actually, why? No, why? I, I, I take that back. It's none of their business. That's what I should say on that. Oh, it pisses me off so bad. Sarah, uh, sorry about that. Uh, occupational licensing, not with my opinion, not Sarah's, not APF's. Okay. <laughs> occupational licensing is going to be on the uh, docket and on the agenda for this year. Sarah, hit me with it. Yeah, I was looking through the bills and there's actually a lot of occupational licensing stuff and there's a couple of prongs to that, but I I will say I feel much the same way. Um, You know, occupational licensing affects, you know, anywhere from a fifth to a third of workers. Um, You know, there's all sorts of things that are licensed. There's hair braiding and, you know, barbers and all sorts of things that don't really need it for the health and safety reasons. So, you know, occupational licensing might make sense for some professions that really affect health and safety, but it honestly, it doesn't for a vast, vast number of professions. Um, and so that's one problem is the mobility issue. If you move here from another state, you're not able to just jump into work. Uh, you have to take a new test. Sometimes you have to repeat education requirements, who knows? Uh, but there's there's uh, huge barriers to entry there. And that is my overall problem with it is not the mobility issue, but the barriers to entry. We're stopping a lot of competent practitioners from being able to do this simply because they've not followed this traditional path by that's being prescribed by some board of occupational licensing for some profession. So that's that's my general principle statement on that. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean I, that's the thing. I mean, you, I didn't even talk about the actual, uh, you know, monetary aspect of it. I mean, you come from someplace else. Again, you've been doing it for whatever it is. Somebody just said fur tanners. I didn't realize that fur tanners had to have an occupational license. But, uh, I mean, you know, if you're, you've are you been a barber for 20 years somewhere else or 10 years somewhere else and you come here, it's not just that you have to show competence. I mean, in some cases, you actually have to go in there and spend money to attend classes for something that you've been doing professionally for a decade and uh, the cost of time and material and everything. I mean, it's, it's just, it's crazy. If I'm going to go get my haircut, uh, I'm going to go get my haircut. If a guy doesn't do a good job, I'm going to go somewhere else. Do I need the government's stamp of approval on somebody to go or whatever? I mean, it, it, it makes no sense to me. Yeah. And what I really love, I found out about this study a, a little while ago and it was conducted in the eighties and I can try and find a link if it's of interest to your viewers, but a really, you know, cornerstone study in occupational licensing looked at an area where electricians started needing to be licensed. And you think, well, that's a great idea. Um, what they actually found is that the number of electrocutions increased in that area where the electricians had to be licensed. And the whole reason for that is because people who would have otherwise been able to afford an electrician services started doing their own electrical work because they were priced out of the market. Right. Um, and so that's, that's really the Cadillac effect here. It's, you know, you can't have your Ford or your, your Fiat, your, your whatever you need to have a Cadillac or you get nothing. And that's another issue I have with it too, is you, you, again, you're deciding that people aren't competent to figure out for themselves if they're doctor or, you know, their barber, any range of these professions, they can't figure out if they are competent or not. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of other quality signals and we can talk a little bit about what those end up looking like. But occupational licensing, I think, just doesn't cut the mustard for a lot of health and safety stuff and is largely unnecessary for a lot of occupations. Now, there is a proposal to uh, to sunset uh, some of this stuff, uh, uh, a review board, right? That's one of the things that's coming up in this legislative session. Yeah, yeah. So this is one of the bills that was recently pre-filed and it's a Sunrise Review Board. And what that ends up looking like is, you know, practitioners or legislators or, you know, the governor can request this board to say, like, we'd like to look at changes to an occupational license. Either we want a new one or we want to change scope of practice or we want to eliminate a licensing board, uh, a license. And, you know, that board, this is really kind of the gold standard for this kind of, um, you know, proposal. Um, there's there's a lot of a range of things that can suffice. And what this board has to figure out is, okay, what is the least restrictive means of ensuring the public's health and safety for this profession? So they list a couple of options, things like strengthening fraud protections. If fraud is the main concern, you can strengthen those protections instead. Or you can have a voluntary certificate um, either state or private issued, things like that, or strengthen your insurance and bonding requirements. Um, so there's a wide range of options for people to choose that fall short of the full occupational license that creates a really intense barrier to entry. Right. Now, we've mentioned barbers and hairdressers a lot because that's one of the most prevalent, but something like 20% of 20% of people in the state, employees in the state, are affected by occupation. This is not a small thing. This covers a lot of ground. Exactly. Yeah, it's not a niche issue. That 20 to 20% uh, to a third, that's for kind of national estimates. But I would not be surprised if Alaska was right up there, too. Um, 
the occupational licensing really does affect a lot of people. And, you know, I think a lot of people look at this and they say, well, I had to go through this licensing process. Why shouldn't, you know, everyone else? Um, but it's just, it's really not a good way of ensuring that, you know, the public's health and safety is, is protected. And all it does is it constrains supply. So you right. think, you know, gosh, my electrician is, you know, licensed. And so that's going to be well, more expensive. And now I'm priced out of the market. Well, and again, it, I was just going to say it ultimately has a price effect because if, you know, if there's a limited number or they have to go through, again, all these additional hoops to do it, they're going to raise their costs commensurately with that. As you were going back to that example of more people getting electrocuted because they couldn't afford electricians because the electricians had to go through all the licensing, you know, all this regulatory capture that's going on. I mean, it's a it's a it's a huge deal. I mean, again, one of my pet peeves, but for a good reason, because this is one of the things that stifles entrepreneurship, in my opinion, in this yes. country. Yeah, it, it's absolutely a restriction. And, you know, it it is difficult to decide that you're moving to a state and then say, but I'm not going to be able to work for six months until I've got this license figured out or, you know, all of these different things. And that's the other part is the the mobility issue. Um, and, and what really is the gold standard there is universal recognition. Why don't we just treat it like a driver's license and say, OK, you know, you're registered in Washington or Montana. You've got this this license and they've shown that you're competent to practice. We'll just recognize that you just get your full automatic practice and right. then you're able to move and start start on day one. Um, and I think that that would go a long way towards mobility. No, issues. I agree with that. Down to the last two minutes. Final thoughts on I mean, this could be a whole hour. I'll be honest with you. Let's final thoughts on uh, on occupational licensing here before I let you go. I would love to talk for a full hour about it. It's one of the things I walk out about. There's a lot of proposals. There's always a couple to, you know, create a new occupational license. So the details escape me there. Uh, again, the Sunrise Review Board is a really promising thing to have some interest in. And the other things are nurse licensure compacts. There's always a couple bills about that. Compacts are good, but universal recognition is better. Um, so I would just, I would really encourage people to look at these things carefully because these are the kind of things that fly under the radar in a lot right. of uh, policymaking. Right. Well, and sunset sunset commissions or sunrise commissions, they're, I mean, they're 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 across the country. We just yeah. need to join the herd to basically say. Is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? What should we do? Um, I think it's a good, I think it's a great thing. So uh, again, maybe we should have you back on just to talk about occupational licensing sometime in the near future. Montalbano Mondays, Montalbano Mondays has got a nice ring to it. Sarah Montalbano from the Alaska Policy Forum. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on board and joining us uh, this morning. As always, it's great to see you. Thank you. All right, hold, yeah, the, hold the line. Don't go anywhere. Not going to let you out that easy. We're going to be back. <laughs> The Michael Duke Show tomorrow. Brad Keithley, Chris Story. Be kind. Love one another. Live well. The Michael Duke Show. All right. Uh... You get the floor. Final thoughts on any of the things that we talked about today. I just get so... I get so mad about occupational licensing. I used to have to pay, it does, and this was a federal thing, I used to have to pay a yearly fee as a broadcaster. I used to have a have to have an operator's license and everything. That's changed yeah. since then, but it always irritated me that I had to pay somebody to do what I did to make my living. It just, you know, 
it's always rubbed me the wrong way. And some of these things just get so ridiculous, it, it blows my mind. Anyway, you can talk about that or whatever you want. Final thoughts, Sarah Montalbano on the floor. It's all it's all you there, sister. Go for it. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm loving that there's some interest in the comments for a full session on this, so we should do that sometime soon. Um, the last thing I'll say is that we will be resuming our legislative updates. So uh, if you haven't already, go to alaskapolicyforum.org, sign up for those. We will be sending out, you know, some Every you know two weeks or so, a, a biweekly update with some of the stuff that's been going on in the legislature and some bills to kind of keep an eye on. Um, so sign up for those, and um, it's just it's really been a pleasure. Um, education is going to be such a huge one, and I see all of these issues coming together. Um, you can't talk about increasing education funding without talking about the budget. You know, this occupational licensing stuff is, you know, always a little incognito, but it's very important and it affects a lot of people oh, yeah. um, very personally. So yeah, um, it's not yeah, a, it, it's, it's not a sexy topic for a lot of people. <laughs> and even some people I see Gail here says, don't make it easy when there's volatile chemicals to use in the beauty industry. I mean, come on. I, I, I just, as much as I respect you on something like that, I'm like, if I go to some place and they burn my hair when they were doing highlights or they're cut, dying my hair, I'm not going back to that. Those people will not remain in business. People are going to get the education they need. They don't need government to go in and give them a stamp of approval because, well, we already know the governmental stamp of approval is hardly worth the paper it's written on to begin with. Uh, there's already other ways to deal with that, and that shouldn't be one of them. Oh, I yeah. The first thing you do when you're trying to find a new place is not look up whether they're, you know, certified. registered or yeah. certified with the state. You're looking at Google reviews. Right. You know, you're looking at the experiences that other people have had there. So I think the the Internet also does a lot to signal oh, quality. Well, definitely in this day and age, I mean, today with the technology. Yeah, I don't know as you need a government stamp of approval for anything because the public will tell you pretty much what somebody does and whether or not they're good or bad. And as you said, liability, bonding, insurance, those kind of things, all those things could be used as a way to protect people in that regard. We don't need a governmental stamp of approval on all everything that we do. It just doesn't, you know, we're just giving them more and more power every day in that regard, which we shouldn't. So anyway, hi, Sarah. Thanks for coming on board there, darling. Appreciate it. And uh, it's always good to see you. And, yeah, uh, who knows? Maybe uh, a week or two from now we could talk about occupational licensing. I'm yeah, gonna, that would be exciting. I'm definitely, now, we've got some experts, too, on, on our side that if you're sick of hearing from me, we can, we can introduce you, too. <laughs> well, I know we've had this conversation once before with somebody from Reason. I can't remember who it was. I think it was Jacob huh. Solomon. But we're gonna we're gonna keep talking about this for sure. It's a it's a big <laughs> deal. So, all right. Well, thanks, Sarah. Appreciate it. It's good to see you, hon. Thanks for uh, coming on board. So yeah, I appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much, Sarah Montalbano, our guest, uh, the Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty Based, Free Thinking Radio. Whew, man, that was fast. We'll see you guys tomorrow. Have a great day. Be kind. Love one another. Live well.
We've shed our terrestrial radio skin, and now we are slimy lizard internet people. It's the Michael Duke Show. <laughs> 